11 o'clock a.m. The clamber of the phone rolls around inside Frank Hickman's head. Bad way to start a Sunday. People call on Sunday afternoon to chat. Sunday morning can only be bad news. You've got a job to do. The voice is too familiar. Matt Jackson, special agent in charge of Lakefront City, never was much for preliminaries. An ex-fed by the name of Richard Barston was killed last night. It looks like a professional job. If there's a pro in town, I want to know who he is and who hired him. Get some operatives and hit the streets. The phone went dead. 11 a.m., Lakefront City Police Headquarters. The commissioner leans back in his overstuffed leather chair. The shiny brass buttons of his vest seem ready to explode from the expanse they can find. Next to him, a thin, nervous fellow can't seem to decide whether to put his hands in his pockets or not. Everyone knows Eric Johansson, the DA. A handful of detectives stand before them, including Detective Maxwell Nelson, who had recently come up the ranks and was anxious to prove himself. Without preamble, the commissioner speaks. The mayor just spent half an hour chewing on me for allowing the killing last night. Then he spent another 15 minutes speculating on where I'd be working if I didn't see this criminal brought to justice. I want this Barston murderer captured, drawn, and quartered in front of a judge before this week is out. Or my boat won't be the only one to sink. 11 o'clock a.m., somewhere deep within Mancusi territory. It was dark. Plush offices always feel that way. The smell of old leather and heavy wood. Luxury, they call it. The lean man in the pinstripe suit behind the desk talked quietly. That didn't matter. He meant every word. Benny Fly and the other thugs who had been summoned knew better than to miss any. There's a war cooking between Tolino and O'Connor. The two of them were at Mancusi's last night to try to patch things up. While they were there, someone made a hit on Mancusi's son-in-law. His steely eyes glinted from beneath the shadow of his hat. We don't want a war right now. Tolino thinks O'Connor took out this Richard Barston guy. O'Connor has it the other way around. We gotta know who's behind it all or there's gonna be a bloody war no one wants. Get some boys and hit the streets. Find out who's the moolah behind the killings. Now beat it. 11 a.m., the Lakefront Herald Examiner. The editor-in-chief puffed cigar smoke like a locomotive. The stogie flared in counterpoint with the smoke. The visibility in the room was rapidly getting worse. The old man got out of his chair, cigar still churning. Old Barson was standing pretty as you please in the middle of all that money. Then pow! He drops like lead. I tell you, half the politicians in the city were there last night. All the power, that is. It makes no difference. Bam! Barson's as dead as yesterday's fish just like that. Somebody big is behind all this. Bad enough to pump lead into some poor wino down on Drunk Alley just because he won't pay his loan shark. The chief began to pace, the smoke really flowing. But in the middle of high-class society, folk, there's a rat as big as my desk in this somewhere. The old man stops and plants his fist in the general vicinity where his waist would be if he had one. I want the scoop on whoever did this. You're my best investigative reporters, so you're dropping everything and getting on this. Got it? Hit the streets, dig up the dirt, check the files downstairs, and see what you can shake loose. His voice raised to a shout. But if I see it in any other paper first, you know I'll be pretty unhappy. Get the guy responsible. I want his name on my headline. Welcome to RPG Storytime, the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we continue the Gangbusters adventure, Death in Spades. The module is by Tracy Ray Hickman, and the story is game-mastered and written by Jeff MacArthur. Vinny sat on a park bench watching the ripples in the water of the lake. The prattle of the ducks rattling in his ears. Time was of the essence, and this was the most productive use of it, despite how it might seem. 
a man wandered in front of his view that Vinny recognized as a cop. Typically, Vinny would lower his scally cap further over his eyes to cover more of his face from the cops. But not to this one. Instead, he angled it to hide his face from anyone who might see them together. Detective Nelson strolled over to Vinny, facing the opposite way so that, between them, they had every angle covered so they could cut the conversation short if they were spotted. I reckon congratulations are in order, Vinny said. Detective. Hell of a time for that to happen, Maxwell said. Or the best time. They looked at each other. Vinny continued. My people want this solved. It may be the only thing keeping Tolino and O'Connor from making peace. Both are going to suspect each other until we know who actually did it. This was the ultimate goal of the two unlikely allies. For the past couple of years, they had been privately feeding information to one another in regards to anything that might help create a lasting peace between the gangs. It was the objective of both their organizations as well. Gang warfare was bad for the city and got in the way of profits, but the police would never work with a syndicate, not even to attain peace. But Vinny and Maxwell had made a private connection, and they were finding ways to accomplish what others could not. They knew that if they were ever caught, Maxwell would be fired, and Vinny, well, he'd get a fancy new pair of cement shoes and a one-way trip to visit the fishes. But today, both men were at a loss. The murder of Richard Barston had come out of the blue. It wasn't that Barston was a major player, in fact, quite the opposite. It was the very fact that he was decidedly not a major player that had everyone shaken up. Why bother? Why take such a chance in such a public place to kill a security guard? And if neither Mancusi nor the police could keep someone safe during such a major event, then anyone could be in danger. There had to be someone none too happy that Mancusi's daughter was marrying an ex-fed, Maxwell said. The boss wasn't. He wanted some way to take him out. But he wouldn't have done it there. His bodyguard Moose, on the other hand, he had the hots for the dame, and no mind for good timing. Maxwell's eyes shot at Vinny, but Vinny shrugged. He was with the boss the whole night. But the way I figure it, that love triangle is the most likely lead to whoever did it. So we should check their apartments, Maxwell added. I can get into Moose's place better than you can, Vinny said. And I can get into Barston's place, Maxwell said. Actually, the dame is living there, Vinny said. She isn't staying with Daddy? Vinny shrugged. But you can chat with her about the love triangle. He got up and began to walk away. Sometime tomorrow, right back here, Maxwell asked. Yep, Vinny said. They usually didn't meet more than once every couple weeks, but this was riddled with urgency. Vinny knew that Moose had nosy neighbors, and they would see him approach. However, some of them knew his acquaintance with the big guy, so he made sure they could see his face as he approached Moose's front door. There he knocked, partially just in case Moose had come home early, and partly to make it seem to the neighbors like nothing nefarious was going on. As Vinny pretended to wait, he slipped his skeleton key into the door and picked the lock. Upon the satisfying click, he knocked again, then he opened the door slightly. Hey Moose, you mind if I come in? He said, loud enough to be heard. Thanks, buddy. Something wrong with your throat? I can barely hear you. Then he slipped inside as though he'd been let in, and closed the door behind him. He then hurried through the apartment as quick as he could to find whatever clues he could. The place looked like what one would expect of a guy named Moose. Not much furniture. Most of that was faded and old. Even the lamp seemed dim. There wasn't a lot. Everything seemed in order. He had a couple notes he had written down near the phone that were instructions from their boss, and a few pieces of private information about their organization. A bit sloppy, but Vinny wouldn't be able to call him on any of it since he ostensibly was not there. The one thing that gave Vinny pause was a few crumpled up photographs in the trash. Several were of Alicia. This made sense. He was probably sore that she had married that ex-fed, 
But then there was another photograph of a girl at the top. Benny recognized her, Sarah Josephs. She was the daughter of Mancusi's accountant. She had disappeared from view the week before, and word had it that it was because someone had beaten her up. I guess we know what happened to you now, he said to the picture. Detective Nelson asked if he could take a look around the apartment to see if there was anything Richard left behind that might be helpful. She abruptly said no and slammed the door in his confused face. Frank Hickman's phone rang again. Twice before noon on a Sunday, this must be a record for his home. Something must be really wrong. Almost. The person calling was Amy Jo True, investigative reporter for the Lakefront City Herald. He had met her on an assignment a year ago when he and others were searching for a missing senator and his family who went missing. She had contacted him several times for confirmation on stories she was researching. She was always correct, sometimes about stories she shouldn't have even known about. As expected, she asked about the death of Richard Barston. This time, it wasn't a confirmation. She was trying to learn as much as she could about him. He was drummed out of the Bureau ten years ago. I assume you know something more about him than the rest of us? Not everyone at the BOI is a pal, Frank told her. Granted, but you must have access. Frank was quiet for a moment. He hadn't thought about how he would deal with the press, or old acquaintances. A.J. was both. You haven't hung up on me, have you, Hickman? she asked. No, but I don't know how much I can do for you. This is internal? Hardly. A former federal agent, now security guard, marrying the daughter of a local crime boss, gets assassinated in front of a gathered throng of the elite of the city. If I can't get anything more on him, I might as well do a story asking why the BOI isn't stopping this sort of thing from happening in our borders. Is that a threat? he asked. It's a request for assistance, she said. I'd much rather do the story about who murdered one of your people. Frank was silent for a moment again. Then he said, I'm going to the morgue to check out the body. You can tag along. The hospital was just across the street from AJ's paper, so it was easy for her to get to. She would have already gone but for the fact that she wouldn't have access to the body without someone like Hickman to help. She agreed to meet him there. The dirty white walls of the hospital stood out against the gray skyline of the city. Even from the street, A.J. could whiff the disinfectant smell of death. Hickman arrived a bit tardier than A.J. had expected. He was so straight-laced when she had worked with him last. She supposed it was because he spent time perfecting how he looked. The man was as clean-cut and sharply groomed as anyone A.J. had ever known. Plus, it wasn't like Barson was going anywhere. A.J. greeted Hickman with a welcoming smile. He reciprocated with a reticent grin, and then went inside. Agent Hickman showed his badge at each stage to the morgue and explained that A.J. was with him. As they went, A.J. asked Hickman what he knew about Barston. He didn't know a lot, but he had called someone just before coming to learn what he could. He hadn't learned much about Barston himself, but he learned a bit about Barston's partner, Sykes. He had always felt bitter towards his partner. The man had gotten him demoted. And Sykes had only recently worked his way back up to where he had been a decade ago. Now that his revolver had been stolen to murder Hickman... It was like the final insult. There's something missing here, A.J. said. Either Sykes gave someone his gun to commit the murder, or whoever stole it was looking to further ruin his life. The first option is being what's investigated, Hickman said. That's why he's been put on leave. As for the latter, there aren't many people who would know their history well enough to steal a gun to frame him. That will be an important list to get, A.J. said. That's next, but first... They arrived at the morgue. The coroner explained the cause of death which they already knew, and that he had come in dead on arrival. The odd part was that rigor mortis set in early. She wheeled out the body, still draped under a sheet. She waited for the two visitors to get close and to watch. Then she pulled the sheet back. The face was pale, peaceful, still. 
it somehow didn't look real. AJ could never get used to the sight. Agent Hickman had a different reaction. He gasped slightly, then grunted angrily as he looked away. Finally, he said, That's not Richard Barston. This has been a presentation of RPG Storytime Gangbusters, a playthrough of Death in Spades by Tracy Hickman. Tune in next time to hear the continuation of the story. Subscribe to the channel to hear more tales of RPG games, or check out our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. We hope you enjoyed it, and happy gaming, everybody.